0: Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' holy name, and we come as members of the body of Christ, members of your family, the family of God. And so, Father, we do look to you today, and we ask that you would give us the grace to know and understand the role that is ours, the purpose for which you have placed us in this moment. And Lord, just bless me as I share, to to be open and honest, to to be authentic, and um, uh, to, to share in a way that will be a blessing to those who hear. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I got a call a couple of days ago from a fellow who is gathering together resources to provide to parents on... Having what I would call crucial conversations, right? Crucial conversations. there's a a book called Crucial Conversations. And if you talk to business consultants on forming uh, supervisors and effective managers and great leaders, they know how to have crucial conversations. They're not afraid to step in and address someone or a team regarding something that is critically important. It's holding back mission accomplishment. It's slowing down. It's, um, it's leading to brokenness on a team or in an organization. So the ability to have crucial conversations, to do it gracefully, to do it well, is a skill that takes time to develop. And it's one of those skills that often gets refined through attempts that fall short. No one, not no one, <laughs> it's a rare thing for someone to have a crucial conversation with a direct report or a peer or a boss or a team and just have it go smoothly the first time and, and every time. That just is so unlikely to happen. And so there is a lot of refining that happens before someone becomes mature in that capability. And to be honest, it's something that I've helped executives with and, and leaders and, and businesses for 25 years. And and I say, to be honest, it's because of what I'm going to say next. <laughs> the, this fellow who is talking to me about, hey, I'm looking to you, Tom, as an expert, that's sort of implied here, not stated, but implied, you must have this great expertise and wealth of experience in helping form parents to have crucial conversations with their kids, especially in the tween and early teen years around matters of sexuality and sex and chastity. And and so I'm looking to you, what'd be a list of recommended resources? and, And I'm sure you've done stuff on this as well. And so I was really happy to talk about all the teachings I'd given and even the resources I'd developed on this. But it, I said, well, truth be told, I haven't done a good job of it myself with regards to my own kids. And it was one of those sort of, you know, like exposure moments, right? So I, I, I could try to dance for you and say, well, I've got an excuse for why I have had a harder time and not been successful with crucial conversations with my own kids in these matters, if I had to first like, say, oh, what's my excuse? Well, my oldest four children are girls. And so those sort of fall more into Carrie's domain. Did you like how I did that? <laughs> but it's true. There is a way in which uh, those kind of conversations do fall more appropriately to the mom. But now I have two sons, a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. No, 16-year-old. Ooh, I got to get that right. A 16-year-old and a soon-to-be 15-year-old. And even though I've danced around and skirted the issues, even though I have put them in front of good speakers and put them into situations at like retreats or conferences or online resources, the sit-down and have an honest, clean, clear communication about things like pornography or masturbation or internet use or uh, being pure, modest and chaste and self-controlled and fighting against lust and things of that nature, I have not had those crucial conversations. And so to be able to just sort of say that out loud, that's not an easy thing. Um, And yet, I started to stop and say, well why? What what makes me comfortable having crucial conversations with adults, with successful executives, with CEOs, with business leaders, with other members of the church community, but when I move into the the like the the circle of relationships that are the most important to me in in my life, my own immediate family, why is it that I have settled for less? Why have I, here's the word, passive. Why have I been passive when it comes to having those conversations in that environment? And it really got me thinking about this at a, in a way that was sort of refreshed it, it it brings up some themes that are really important in my own life in ministry in my own sense of call and mission uh, in serving uh, Catholics and, and the wider community of faith over the you know past 32 years now and that is recognizing the call of the moment you know when i when I give talks, one of the ways that I would typically begin, if it was a new audience, is that I would say to the folks that are here, I, 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 I'm praying that you have a sense of expectant faith. Expectant faith that the living God is not only present in this moment, but has been awaiting this moment. And then I raise the, the, the drama bar a bit, not, not a bit, but quite a lot. And I'll point to an individual, and I'll just say, not just to the crowd, but to you, what's your name? And and what I'll often do is I'll I'll say, Lord, just give me a nudge, give me a little uh, inkling, give me a, a sense of who it is you want me to call out. So that raises it up even more, and because I'll say that to the person. I'll say, what's your name? And then, you know, Karen, or Jim, or Bill, or whatever. And I'll say, look, uh, I felt drawn to, to say this to you, that from all eternity, God has been gazing down upon this moment, this night in your life, for he has assigned, he has associated a blessing, an encounter, a breakthrough, a breaking into your life in order to communicate a grace to you, a blessing to you, that, and, and that's what's at stake in this night. What's at stake in this night isn't just, oh, it was worth coming out, I heard some interesting stories, he was entertaining, I gained some new information, or I came away with a couple of practical tips. No, wait a minute, no, there's a, an encounter with the living God associated with the right now moment in this life, in this church for you, and if this grace is not communicated, if this grace doesn't happen, it's not God's fault. And... All of a sudden when you like think about it like that, it's like Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I just was coming out for a talk and you're telling me that from all eternity, God has gazed down upon this moment and looked at me and he knows exactly where I am and what's what I'm going through and what I most desperately, deeply need that I maybe don't even know myself or where I'm feeling stuck or where I've sinned and I need to repent and I need to cry out for mercy, where he wants to bless me beyond my expectation and imagining. He wants to come close to me and unbind me and set me free. He wants to give me a fresh start and a new beginning. That's what's at stake tonight? I mean, at Whoa. All of a sudden, the drama of discipleship, the drama of living in relationship with the God of life, the God who is my Father and who is engaged, the God who is not afraid of crucial conversations, crucial meaning like the cross. It is through the cross that he will converse with you. He will come into communion with you. And that's what's at stake in the right now moment. And and like I said, that's how I used to begin my talks um, when I would go to a, a, a first, uh, you know, when I'd speak to, in, a, in a place for the first time, to to raise that sense of event, the event quality, the breaking in quality, the living quality of of the living Lord who's here. Um, but more recently, in the last say year or two, I've changed how it is. I would begin these presentations. And instead, I would say, do you realize that someone's eternity just might be at stake in how you respond to tonight? Whoa, wait a minute. Talk about a whole other level of drama. Talk about a whole other level of, all right, is this hyperbole? right but to say no 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 this night you have an opportunity to impact someone's eternity not someone's like life situation here and now like if you gave someone some money and they went and got some food for dinner or you blessed someone by speaking a word of kindness no you have the ability to impact someone's eternity And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that even now, and let me make this real for you, brothers and sisters listening to this, at this very moment, as you listen to this radio radio program, there are some human beings on this earth who are about to enter eternity. During this radio program, there are some souls, ready or not, who will cross the threshold of death and face Jesus Christ. And the outcome of that encounter is going to be either heaven or hell. Okay, hear that again. During this radio program, there are some people who will die. They will cross the threshold of death, and they will face Jesus Christ. And the outcome of that encounter will either be heaven or hell. And to understand what that means... Heaven is the unending bliss for which we were created that is beyond our highest imagining or greatest expectation. It will be complete, utter, perfect fulfillment that continues forever. Or it'll be an unimaginable pain, unending agony, and pure terror That will never end. That's what's at stake in people's lives when they cross the threshold of death. Ready or not, here it comes. And the sadness is some of these folks who are approaching death don't realize that their life will come to an end in the next 40 minutes. And they're not prepared. Uh, the prayer of the church is, Oh Lord, preserve me from an unprepared death. I, I, I don't. I want to be prepared. I want to be ready for that moment that I die. You've heard me say on this program how in one of the visions at Fatima, that Our Lady of Fatima, to the three shepherd children, Jacinta, Lucia, and Francisco, that one of the apparitions, the Blessed Mother, showed them a vision of hell, and it was utterly frightening, howling, wailing, a sea of fire that was boiling, and souls, uh, you know, clamoring over each other, and, and the image included souls falling into this lake of fire. And it wasn't that as they were looking at this vision that there was one soul that was falling, but souls as numerous as snowflakes falling into the lake of fire. And what was it? What, what was leading to this? What was the, the cause of this? And the, 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 the new, most numerous souls, they said, that the Blessed Mother said, were sins of the flesh, lust and impurity other sins of the flesh. And and the question that they asked when the vision ended was why are these souls falling into hell? And the Blessed Mother, part of her answer was they are poor sinners who have none to pray for them. They are poor sinners who have none to pray for them. And they were given a mission in that moment to pray a rosary daily, fervently, and devoutly for poor sinners who are near to death, but far from God, as an act of penance and reparation for them, that they might not be unprepared in their moment of death. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. Well, not 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 a very fun talk today, huh? But an important one. Not an easy talk today. But a crucial one, a crucial conversation that I'm having with you because of a uh, an easy conversation that I had a couple of days ago that became very convicting to me about the need that I have to be off the sidelines of passivity and to get in the game and to have crucial conversations with my young men, my boys who are young men. and and I'm sharing this with you because, it's so easy to come up with excuses about, well, why haven't I been doing this all along? And I tried out the excuses on Carrie. None of them worked. (laughs) I'm like, well, you know, Carrie, we've got nine kids. And she just brushed that one away. So do I. Right. Uh, We've got nine kids, meaning it's hard to do everything right when you have so many kids in such a short window of time, nine kids in 13 years, it's busy. It's, it's, it's continuously busy. And so it's easy to let something that is of high significance to miss the moment, uh, you know, to miss the moment and, and to miss that, that span of time. Well, Carrie is very simple. First things first. Well, let other things go are these other things that you spend so much time on that important? If you spent half the time or a tenth of the time you spent talking with your kids about sports and basketball and strategizing those things, and you gave that time over to faith formation and crucial conversations, would this even be an issue? And I'm like, uh, okay, let's let's move on. Let me try a different excuse. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it, it, it's a ma- it's not a matter of... I don't have time. It's a matter of what do I choose to give my time to with regards to the conversations that I have with my boys. And it's with my kids, too. Uh, but I, I'm, just, I'm picking on myself as it regards my boys for a reason, and that is it's the need that this moment in history has with being spiritual fathers. Being spiritual fathers is a theme that kind of was bubbling up for me um, the other excuse I tried, and Carrie punted that one too, right out of the stadium, was, well, uh, I tended to be more passive when it when it came to these conversations because my father never had them with me. I never had these conversations at all. And so I most naturally think about what it means to be a father by how I was fathered. And, and and it's hard for me to blame my own father because he was brought up in a home where his father was absent a lot because of work he was a truck driver and then his father died when he was 12 years old and so there wasn't a strong sense of his father investing in him with these kind of conversations and my mom had a similar very challenging upbringing with her father who was away at war and who was a harsh man. And so there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, fatherly models who were like very invested in having crucial conversations. Well, Carrie punted that one right out and said, how did, in the whole history of the church, people don't have a lot of uh, life circumstances that are easy. And so don't don't settle for that, right? You know, you take a look at history, and you frankly have got it really easy compared to most times in history to be able to say you have plenty of context for uh, being formed to overcome, right, the limitations that have been part of your own upbringing in these things. Like, Tom, look at you. Look at all the formation you've been gifted to have in the seminary for five years, afterwards in a men's household for two years, and then Living in uh, in community and uh, with many beautiful friends in church faith settings, you get to spend your life doing this stuff. Please, come on, give me a break. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll stop with the excuses. And then she said something that was so striking to me. She said, because we were talking, we were talking about this. We we went out and we were um, just took some time together, just the two of us, and. Um, it wasn't really a date night. We had our like notebook out and we were sort of casting back over 2021, kind of casting back a vision over the year. And like, okay, what were the highlights and uh, what were the most significant moments? And, and, and what are we looking at in terms of sensing, God, what are you asking of us in 2022? What is your resolution, Lord, for 2022 for our lives? And uh, she said, when it comes to, you know fathering really it's it's not you know she said my my sense my sense of like upsetment or being criti- critical was more towards what kind of what kind of spiritual fathering have we gotten from our bishops and our priests like where have they been fathers to us to lead and provide and protect us what have they been doing to lead, provide, and protect us from these various challenges that can overwhelm so many families, that can overwhelm so many men. And I began to think about that, and I'm like, I'm so clear about this idea that as men I'm called, as a man I'm called to lead, provide, and protect my family. Lead, provide, protect, and that gets traced back to Jesus Christ, priest, prophet, and king. As a priest, I provide. As a prophet, I protect with the truth. And as a sharing in Christ's kingly service, I'm, I'm to lead. So lead, provide, and protect. And what I just said to you so easily, and I could go on and on about it for a couple of hours, shockingly, I was not able to say until about two or three years ago maybe see, three, or maybe four years ago, is when I, it, it first it dawned on me through some teachings I was listening to uh, from the traditional Latin Mass community that, wait a minute, this is my call as a husband and a father to lead, provide, and protect. I'd never heard that before. I never heard that—you need to understand what that means that I never heard that before. I spent five years in the seminary, and I never once heard that as a priest, as a spiritual father, I'm supposed to lead, provide, and protect my flock. I never once heard in the theology, all the theology courses I've ever had on baptism, on the sacraments, on marriage, on ordination, um, all the teaching that I've ever read, <laughs> uh, the, all the teaching in John Paul II, on the theology of the body, and— in, in, The doctoral dissertation I wrote on his teachings never clearly simply stated I'm called to be a a father who leads, provides, and protects his family. So in some ways, I'm passing on to you, my brothers and sisters and, you know, brothers and moms and dads, as you hear this, put it out there for your kids, especially your boys. You are supposed to lead, provide, and protect in your life and dig into what that means. Husbands, I'm— saying it to you. Look, let's get that last excuse off the table, because bishops bishops were never taught how to lead, provide, and protect. I know that. I know that because I went through five years of the seminary, and I've worked in the church at the highest levels with the bishops in this country back in the early 90s. I was serving before it was the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. It was the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, and I was serving on a committee as a lay consultor. Uh, and I know a lot of bishops, guys I studied with, their formation is not magic. It's not guaranteed that they get what it means to lead, provide, and protect because, in fact, many things that would make someone a good candidate to be a bishop would make them a lousy leader. It's being a good company man that makes someone a good candidate to be a bishop. They know how to be deferential. They know how to toe the line. They know how to support the the programs and the initiatives of the bishops that they are serving under. They often hold um, significant administrative roles. What they are not equipped to do, what they are not asked to do, what they are not challenged to do is to be a prophetic voice that stands up, speaks out, and pushes back against a culture that is increasingly anti-God and anti-gospel. If you don't believe me, you ask the question, let me ask you the question, how how many times have you seen bishops leading the gathered throngs of Catholics through the streets to stand up against the slaughter of innocent babies in their mother's wombs? This would be happening continuously as a clarion call uh, for the last 40, uh, 48 years, if this was more seriously considered? How about standing up against no-fault divorce or against contraception or against uh, same-sex marriage and false understandings of marriage? How about against gender ideology? How about against, how about against, how about, where are the prophetic voices speaking up and saying, Catholics, stand up because this is the truth and the truth will set us free. The truth is protection. You want protection against, destructive ways of living speak the truth the truth is entrusted to us by god this is our call we have to do this we have to do this we must do this why let's go back to that vision souls as numerous as snowflakes are falling into the lake of fire falling into hell because they're poor sinners who have none to pray for them they are near to death but far from god So pray a rosary every day and make acts of penance and reparation for these poor sinners so that as they approach death, often unprepared, often unaware, or spiritually trapped in mortal sin, what about us? What can we do for them? Do we have any sense of compassion or solidarity, any sense of burning concern about the state of their souls as they approach death, these poor sinners? Why aren't we? Why aren't we doing something about this? When that's really what's at stake. If we had even uh, ten percent, one percent, as much passionate concern about the eternal well-being, the eternal health of souls, and to protect souls from falling into spiritual darkness and bondage through sin and and believing lies and living lies that are destroying them and putting them into spiritual darkness and bondage, if we had just a, a small percentage of as much care about that as we do about imposing mandates and oppressive approaches and policies in the name of protecting the physical health Where's the concern about the mental health, the spiritual health, in terms of imposing policies and mandates and, and uh, requirements when it comes to spiritual well-being? Where is this? And so, we're just too passive. We are too passive. Uh, why are we so afraid of crucial conversations? Why are we so afraid of being part of the work of Jesus Christ, being part of Jesus Christ's own efforts to save poor sinners from falling like snowflakes into hell. And this is one of those moments, right? Christ is passing by. Christ is passing by. And are we going to miss this moment or are we going to respond? Are we going to miss the moment or are we going to respond? I was... Uh, I had shared this with you when I came to that movie, uh, that mo- Finch, and it was. Uh, I wish I'd done more with the time I had. I wished I'd done more with the time I had. Uh, I I don't want. I don't want to live like that, and I don't want to die like that. And I hope you don't either. I, I I don't want to do more with the time that I had. I want to live all in with the time I have. And here we are. It's just, what, two days before Christmas. And we can do something about this because we're part of the communion of saints. We're part of the body of Christ, the communion of saints. Now, it's not just capital S saints, the saints in heaven. It's not just the communion that exists, the union that exists, the spiritual union that exists between those that have gone before us in faith and are sharing in the life of God in heaven. Those that are in purgatory and being purged and purified and and the union that we share with them through being part of the body of Christ here on earth. It's also the communion of saints that exists among all of us who live life here on earth. There is a union that exists that is important. It means a lot. And what and what's required is for us to step up and to be willing to play our part. I'm going to read from... Okay, here's a book that I'm guessing not many of you have read. Um, I'm going to read the whole title. (laughs) Okay, you ready? The whole title of this book is Theodrama, Theological Dramatic Theory, Volume 4, The Action. There you go. It's by Hans Urs von Balthasar, Theodrama, which is it's the this actually comes out to be volume eleven of a sixteen volume series plus an epilogue uh, that Hanser von Balthazar wrote about the uh, reflecting upon the uh, the concept of beauty and the teaching of the church, uh, the revelation of God as true, good, and beautiful um, in all of these volumes. And so, this is the second part of the of the um, the glory of the Lord. Uh, this this great work of uh von balthasar so this is in the second part of the of this three-part work and in the fourth volume of this second part is called the action and in this section of the action he reflects on the power of the communion of saints the power to impact each other to uh, influence what happens in each other's lives and it's not just his thinking, but he draws from uh, great church fathers and others who have reflected on this. And um, when we come back from the break, I'm going to read uh, a bit of just, a, just a, a one page, less than a page, that is incredibly powerful. And, and I think you'll be stirred by it in a minute on Sound Insight. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. And I'm... I'm reflecting on a couple of conversations I had, one with a guy who called me and said, hey, Tom, resources for parents on having crucial conversations with their kids around matters of sexual identity, sexual morality, uh, those issues, chastity, theology of the body, things like that, because, boy, so few parents are really equipped to do this. And I thought, wow, I felt convicted because it's easy for me to teach others about it than it is to do it myself. And so, uh, that was one conviction, and I was talking about it with Kerry the next day. This was this would have been two nights ago, and um, and she basically uh, was able to swat away all my excuses and rationalizations for why I wasn't doing it, and basically was up your game, Tom. And so I've been reflecting on that, and ended up reading this in Von Balthazar, this really beautiful section about the important ways that we impact each other. This is really where I'm going here, is that we affect each other. And and the Lord does assign for us a part to play. And don't doubt that, that we have a part to play to impact each other's lives. So I'm going to read this about the communion of saints and get ready to be stunned by it. And then I'm going to circle back around to not just that spiritual way that we do this, but I'm going to come back to the call that we have to be spiritual fathers, uh, to be fathers, who are willing to step up, speak out, even in to overcome passivity and awkwardness to, to, to be willing to do what is necessary if we're going to fulfill our call. Okay. So this is from von Balthazar. How far does the power of intercession for another person extend? How far can we act on behalf of someone else? Is it possible to win the grace of conversion for a person in grave sin? Okay, these are great questions. How many times do I get people who say, I'm praying for this child of mine, this loved one, this sibling, this parent, this, this grandchild who is far from God, right? Near to death, but far from God. But how about just far from God? How far does the power of intercession for another person extend? How far can we act on behalf of someone else? You realize that that's what we're doing. We're standing in their place. We're acting on their behalf when we intercede. Is it possible to win the grace of conversion for a person in grave sin? Remember, a person in grave sin does not have a movement towards God because they're spiritually cut off from God. St. Thomas Aquinas answers, and this is his answer. If by grace a man fulfills the will of God, it is appropriate, according to the laws of friendship, that God should carry out the saving will of one man for another, even if there is an obstacle on the part of the person whose justification is being sought. Did you hear that? This is Aquinas. This is like heavy hitter. If by grace a man fulfills the will of God, it is appropriate, according to the laws of friendship, that God should carry out the saving will of one man for another, even if there's an obstacle on the part of the person whose justification is being sought. I love that. That is so consoling to me. That is so consoling because oftentimes when we are praying for a loved one who's far from God, we often sense that they are trapped in spiritual bondage, trapped in likely spiritual death as a result of mortal sin. And even though we can't read their soul, but just lis- lo- listening to them and um, listening and looking at their behaviors and attitudes, uh, we sense and see the darkness, the bondage, the stuckness. the the Lazarus dead in the tomb-like quality of their lives. Okay, back to—and so Aquinas is saying, look, God can stir in you that call to pray for this person's salvation, and God will honor what he has planted inside of you. If you are in friendship with God, if that is, if you're in a loving union with God, and what emerges in you is that urgent call to pray for that one's salvation— the Lord, who has planted that desire in you, in that loving friendship you have with Him, is using you as a conduit through your loving friendship with the one that you're praying for to impact them even to the point of salvation. Okay, let's continue. We're not done yet. This qualification leaves everything open. All that is hidden from us is the mechanism, all that is hidden from us is the mechanism by which the members of the body of Christ can act on behalf of one another god alone can know this in other words god will stir in you a desire to pray for others to pray for people in certain situations and circumstances and the lord is the one who's doing this because he's intending to use you as a conduit of blessing in other people's lives let's continue god alone can know this but it gives us a firm hope that the energies of this acting on behalf of others can affect the innermost region regions of other people's freedom that that is right, right into the core of their will, right into the depths of their heart, this grace, this acting on behalf of others, this intercession for them can get all the way to the inside of the core of their being. It is clear that the Acts of the Apostles makes a close connection between the martyrdom of Stephen and the conversion of Saul, a connection pointed out by Augustine on several occasions. Paul was profoundly convinced of the fruitfulness of his work and sufferings for his communities and for the church as a whole. So there we're seeing a scriptural, some scriptural examples of how Stephen's martyrdom was intimately connected to Paul's conversion, and how Augustine sees Augustine appointed uh, to that, as well as Paul's own sufferings and were fruitful in the communities for which he labored. This highlights this is again from Balthasar one of the fundamental elements of catholic traumatic theory even of it even if its way of working remains hidden there is in principle no limit to the possible influence of one member upon another within the spiritual community of goods both in space and in time let me, hit, let me say that again. There's, in principle, no limit to the possible influence that you can have on the life of the one that you hold dear within this spiritual communion of persons, this spiritual communion, this communion of saints, and the community of goods that are part of the treasury of the church that exists in space and time. And then he quotes Charles Journet, who says this, A particular movement of grace that saves me from some profound danger can have come from the loving act yesterday, tomorrow, or 500 years ago of an entirely unknown person whose soul stood in a mysterious relationship to mine and which thus found its reward. Okay, did you hear that? (laughs) let me say that one more time a particular movement of grace that's alive in you brothers and sisters right now even as you hear this a particular movement of grace that that is that saves you that rescues you or preserves you from some profound danger can have come from the loving act of an entirely unknown person whose soul stood in a mysterious relationship with you and which thus found its reward. And that loving act from this unknown person may have happened yesterday, may happen tomorrow, or may have happened 500 years ago. What we call free will is like those modest flowers of the field whose seeds the wind carries far away in all directions to land and germinate on God knows what mountain, in God knows what valley. The revelation of his miracles will be the spectacle of one moment in eternity. That is so powerful. To think that what's happening in your life right now, the grace that you're given, maybe the grace to listen to this program that's encouraging you to take an action or freeing you from a particular discouragement or confusion, bringing you a particular conviction whatever that is, that grace might have been stirred in you by a prayer prayed by Catherine of Siena, by a prayer prayed by some unknown Italian woman in a church in southern Italy in the 1960s, or from some person who will be praying tomorrow in a cloistered monastery in, in, uh, in France next month. This idea of the communion of saints all of a sudden explodes. It gets so big. It's so powerful. It's not just that you're inspired by the life of someone or that even their intercession for you now from heaven is at work, but the Lord, in the mystery of how he works, uses one person's life at one moment in history to touch another person's life in an entirely different moment of history and those two souls do not know that their lives were in communion in the mystery of the heart of god the heart of christ to bless this is the beauty of the communion of saints and i you know i don't know if that stirs you but boy that stirs me so much when we come back i'm going to quote from Leon, uh, Leon Blois, who is also referenced here by von Balthazar in just a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. Today I'm reflecting on the call we have to realize that as the body of Christ, we influence each other. We impact each other. We've been blessed by others that we, we've never met and, and won't know until heaven reveals, heaven reveals how others' lives were bound up with ours, Others' lives were used by God to be a blessing to ours, and conversely, how the Lord will use your life to be a blessing to others. Yes, in the way that the Our Lady of Fatima brought out and inspired and stirred uh, the three visionaries of Fatima to pour their lives out for the sake of the for poor sinners who are near to death, but far from God, but also for us, even here and now, come on, come on now, for us here and now, who are called to stand up, speak out, and push back, us, we, who are called to, to, to stop being passive as men in our own families, but to step in and have crucial conversations so that we will be leading, providing, and protecting in the way that God intends, we need some grace. We need some mighty graces to break down those walls of passivity, those walls of indifference, those walls of awkwardness, those walls of excuses that distract us, that divert us, and that disperse us from fulfilling the call. Let me give this quote from Léon Bois. Again, it's quoted in this book by Hans Urs von Balthasar. You don't have to go get the book. Please don't. It's uh, not that it's a bad book, but that— a couple of good quotes doesn't mean that the book is going to be easily accessible. It's volume four, and so you really need to read volumes one to three, which uh, you, you <laughs> just leave it alone. Go, move on. Uh, if you have a serious interest in like uh, theology, deep theology, then okay, go ahead. And they're at Ignatius Press. But anyway, so here's the quote. So speaks Léon Blois. Elsewhere, he says, Every human being who performs a free act thereby projects his personality into infinity. Wherever and whenever it occurs, an act of love, a moment of genuine compassion, sings the praise of God from Adam to the end of time, heals the sick, consoles the despairing, quiets tempests, frees prisoners converts the unbelieving, and protects all mankind. Wow. Did you ever think about your life like that? Did you ever think about the impact of your life? Wherever and whenever a human being performs a free act of love, a movement of genuine compassion, Sings the praise of God from Adam until the end of time, healing the sick, consoling the despairing, quieting tempests, freeing prisoners, converting the unbelieving, and protecting all mankind. So we all, we all can do this. In fact, von Balthasar continues a few pages later, and the last thing, he quotes Aquinas one more time to, to ground this idea. Aquinas says that the one who lives in love shares in all the good that is done in the entire world. The one who lives in love, meaning in charity, in that theological infused gift of charity, the one who lives in love, who acts, who is in love, who, who acts from love, who is moved by love, shares in, participates in all the good that is done. In the entire world that's the power of this communion of persons we don't often think about it reflect on it realize it and it's it's just stunning how we miss out on our call because of that lack of awareness so if this this stunning call that we have to be able to impact each other's lives and that's part of being the communion of Saints There's also the specificity, the uniqueness of the call that is ours individually within that body of Christ. And so I made a bigger deal in this particular program about the call that we have as parents to be able to engage in these crucial conversations. When you think about what's at stake in the lives of kids today, um, especially the lives of tweens and teens into young adulthood, um, when it comes to forming their awareness of who they are as sexual beings, their own sense of sexual identity, their own sense of sexual morality, having a clear conscience, a well-formed conscience regarding the meaning of chastity and purity and modesty and self-control, the, talk about the odds stacked against them and the power of social media platforms to deform, malform, and, and combat against, to, to malform and combat against godly ways of looking at sexuality. Uh, I, just saw, I just saw yesterday uh, an article that said that the most visited website in the world was no longer Google, but TikTok. That's shocking to me. I guess it's not. Uh, TikTok is a social media platform that has all these little short videos and it has, it's these little TikTok videos now are not only on the app, but they also show up on YouTube and Facebook. They're kind of integrated in these little short clips. They're everywhere. And so that platform is so dangerous purity, modesty, chastity, and self-control. It's so dangerous when it comes to forming a godly vision of sexual identity, sexual morality. It is so clever, it is so pervasive, and it is intimidating to the young people who are being permitted and enabled to go on these platforms through smartphones. Uh, and, And so I say fathers, mothers, you are called upon to up your game when it comes to putting phones into kids' hands and not monitoring and managing access to TikTok um, and Instagram and Snapchat. These platforms are odious. They are hateful when it comes to the idea of promoting and supporting an authentic, life-giving sense of these kids' own sexual identity and forming their minds and hearts And what are we doing about it? Like, are we having crucial action, not just crucial conversations, but are we taking crucial actions with regards to our kids? So many of these kids now are being confused by gender ideology that is becoming so pervasive in the schools. So many kids are just being led into. Confusion, discouragement, depression, anxiety, oppression because of the waves of this stuff that washes over them. And you can imagine how clever it is well, these kids are hitting puberty and they're hitting this sense of it feels awkward, it feels weird, I don't, don't really feel good in my skin, I don't really feel good about myself. And then to have that be interpreted as, well, you know what, maybe that's a sense of confusion about your authentic gender. And this gender ideology will come rolling in and lead to these kids being bound up by dark, oppressive ways of seeing themselves. And what are we doing about it? What are? Where are our spiritual fathers? Where are our spiritual fathers? You want to, you want to protect your 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 sheep. You want to protect your students in grade school and in high school. Focus less on, on, mandating. Uh, uh, medication paths and focus more on spiritual medication against more immorality and dark evil paths that are leading kids to depression and self-harm, suicidal ideation, depression, taking actions uh, and making decisions about their own lives and bodies that will lead to hormone treatments and mutilation of their own God-given physical being uh, where are our spiritual leaders? So if you can't rely on them, my brothers and sisters, my brothers, you who are men, you who are fathers, then it's time for you. It's time for me to step up, to take the actions that are necessary to protect and lead and provide for our kids. And so I, it's like, this is welcome. This is, this is my Christmas gift. This is my Christmas gift. Uh, This is the gift that the Lord has given to me, the challenge to step up and not settle for less. I'm passing the gift on to you. I'm passing it on to you, my brothers in, in, in the faith, to say, Lord, please give me the grace not to be distracted from this call by other things that are of lesser importance, not be diverted away from, betraying my call as a father who leads, provides, and protects, and not be dispersed not to get so busy doing so many other things that I settle for excuses regarding why I don't take more action, more serious, vigorous, consistent, persistent action to be able to address these things. The one who lives in love shares in all the good done in the world. Maybe there's some loving saints down through the generations and in the generations to come that are praying, praying for us right now. And it's time for us to allow the graces that are pouring into this moment from throughout history and from heaven itself to take root and to blossom forth in how we live our lives. It's time. So I don't know what exactly that's gonna mean concretely for, uh, for our lives as a community of faith, but I know that it's got me doing some vigorous examination of conscience about how I'm living my life. So more to come, but I'm against the end of my program, so not today. All right, God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.